Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the intro to the introduction of the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. The reason for this introduction of the introduction that you're about to hear is yesterday here in St. Louis, Missouri, I recorded our guest live and we streamed on social platforms, which means some of the interaction will take place as people are tuning in on Facebook or on Twitter, on YouTube, on various other social sites. And so you're going to get a flavor of what it's like when we send and stream the video out live. That was yesterday. But today is a new day, and we are grateful that you are part of the journey forward. If you'd like to make sure that you uh, have opportunity to join us for future episodes such as this one that stream live, including next week's when we have an opportunity of bringing on another guest streaming live. His name is Bob Costas. Let me encourage you to check out more information on our podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. And on that site, you can learn about not only the podcast, but all of the social channels that we share our good news with. So without further ado, let me bring you up to speed on today's show. It was recorded yesterday. Her name is Allison Levine. She's an amazing guest. She's an awesome overcomer. I love the conversation. So of the folks who tuned in live. And I think today you're going to realize why they were so impressed, not with her, although she was impressive, but with what remains possible in their lives. And now today, my friends, in your life going forward. So without further ado, welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast, streaming to you live uh, because of the generosity and because of the belief of our friends at Keeley Companies. My name is John O'Leary, and you know when we speak to you live that we have someone really important and a message that is vitally relevant to your life. And so whether you are tuning in today from Twitter or YouTube or Facebook, or Instagram, or some cool social media site I don't even know exist, or you're coming in the old-fashioned way through our podcast, I want to be the very first to welcome you in to the journey forward. I have the honor of bringing on someone that I have looked up to and followed in her footsteps for quite a while. She is a remarkable human being. You're going to be blown away by what she's overcome and the humility, grace, and grit that she's shown while overcoming it. She uh, has accomplished so much, so much. I'm going to read a little bit of the bio from this human being, and then I'll, before I bring her on, share a hilarious thing she mentioned to me right before we went live. So here we go. This is a little bit today about our friend, our guest. Her name is Allison Levine. Here we go. She is a world-class adventurer and explorer and mountaineer and New York Times best-selling author. She's a world-class leadership advisor and beer muse and filmmaker and storyteller and dog lover. She's a world-class empowerer and knowledge sharer, challenge taker, boundary breaker, growth enabler, impact maker, game changer. She's a remarkable lady, an awesome human being. And right before we went live, I, we were talking like, what do you hope these leaders today might receive for tuning in with us today? And she goes, gosh, John, I'm so ordinary, and I'm not an athlete at all. This from a lady who has climbed the seven highest peaks on the seven continents around the world, gone to the North and South Pole, reminding us that she is not an athlete at all, but really more than that humility, reminding you that regardless of the challenges you face, the headwind you may face, the difficulty that may be in your present or in your future, that you are in control of what you can do. You can take the next right step. And in doing so, you will change not only your world, but also, as Allison has revealed repeatedly, the world. So my friends, as we get ready to bring on my friend, Allison, a couple things today. Number one, open up your journals, grab your favorite Live Inspired pen, get ready to take some notes. Secondly, for those who are tuning in live, what an awesome chance right now to share. So much negativity is being shared online, shared through the media and shared socially. 
why not share a really powerful story of overcoming and of life? You're going to be sharing today the story of Allison Levine. So Allison Levine, my friends, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I'm so excited to be here with you. Finally, I wanted to, I mean, connect with you for years. So um, this is like a little dream come true for me to finally connect with you. So thank you for the opportunity to be here with all your viewers and listeners. Well, you, you heard me give you this obnoxiously long-winded, passionate introduction. <laughs> when you meet someone at a grocery store or, uh, you know, you're checking into a, a hotel or whatever it might be, somewhere just in passing and they say, huh, what, what do you do? What do you do? How do you respond to that? Uh, oh, I say, I'm like, oh, I'm a dog lover. Um, no, I my dog, you're going to have to meet him at some point because he's sleeping. If you hear snoring, by the way, during this interview, it's because my dog is laying right below me snoring up a storm. Um, so I tell people that I am an adventurer and uh, I, I'm an adventurer and an explorer and an author. That's what I tell people. But mostly what I tell people is I'm somebody that loves to share stories of adventure with other people because I feel like there's so many different ways to define adventure. And adventure doesn't mean you have to go to the North Pole or the South Pole or climb Mount Everest. Um, adventure just means that you have to open up your world and go explore something that's new to you. So I consider all of, you know, lots of different things, a form of adventure. And um, you mentioned that I always say I'm not an athlete. I don't think I'm any like special, like elite athlete. I always say I'm just a normal person like anybody else. And um you know, to when it comes to climbing Mount Everest and doing things like that, it's not necessarily the most elite athletes that get to the summit. It's the people who are willing to endure pain and are just relentless about putting one foot in front of the other. So I don't feel like I'm, you know, I've climbed Mount Everest twice to the summit once, uh, managed to climb the highest peak on every continent. And I skied to both the North and the South pole, but I, I really don't think I'm any kind of like elite athlete or anything. I just am someone that has a strong sense of perseverance. Awesome. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about the perseverance. We're going to be talking about where it formed, what it's done for you in your life, what you've done for others because of it, and ultimately what it means for us, what it means for us. Allison, your, your upbringing, I mean, to me, you grew up in Arizona, typically not known as the birthplace of great mountaineers and Antarctic explorers. So let's talk about some of the explorers who informed who you became in your life. Let's start with your dad. He actually sounds like a fascinating guy. Worked at the oh. FBI for, I understand. So talk about your dad. For yeah, a while. well, it's funny because I'm actually married to an FBI agent too. But my, um, my father was in the FBI. He was in the FBI in the 60s under Hoover. And and um, he was the first FBI agent to ever publicly speak out against Hoover and the Bureau because he felt that Hoover was doing all of these unethical things. And at the time, Hoover was incredibly powerful. I mean, back then, the FBI director had all kinds of power that you know they don't have today necessarily. But Hoover was feared mm. by you know, presidents and politicians. And so when my dad discovered that he was doing all kinds of unethical things, he tried to expose Hoover and my dad was branded, um, you know, a, a threat to national security. We have through the Freedom of Information Act, we have um, memos that Hoover wrote to then Attorney General Bobby Kennedy saying, mm -hmm. this guy is a threat to national security. I want his phone tapped. I want his residence under surveillance now and in the future. And so, um, you know, he basically, my dad was railroaded out of the bureau and Hoover tried to ruin his career everywhere he went after that. And it wasn't until Hoover died that he was investigated and that they realized that everything that my dad was saying was true. And so then he was, you know, in Time Magazine and he's been written up in all these books. His name's Jack Levine. He's still alive. He's in Vegas, living outside of Vegas. He's uh, 86 years old in a retirement community there. Um, but it, he really taught me the importance of when you see something, when you know about something that's wrong, like yeah. you flag it, you do everything you can to bring attention to it and to make it right. And I mean, he was this brand new agent in his mid twenties who was going up against arguably one of the most powerful men in the world. And he wasn't afraid of that. And yes, it ruined his career. Um, but he just taught me, you go down swinging when you believe in something, mm. when you know, something's right, when you need to right a wrong, you, you go down swinging. We need that reminder today. 
yeah. uh, pol politically, racially, in the yes. marketplace of life. Yes, in so many areas. When you see something wrong, you flag it. And even if it has some cost assigned to it, you raise your hand and you move forward. It's a, it's yeah. a great lesson from dad, one that you've been applying your entire life. Yeah, no, I mean, no one would listen to him. I have this great photo of him in handcuffs because um, he broke into a congressional meeting waving this 40 page manuscript that he had written. And he said, my, you know, my name is Jack Levine. I am an American citizen and I demand that people listen to me. And, you know, nobody would listen to him. Next thing he's, you know, escorted out. <laughs> we have a picture of him from the newspaper being escorted out by cops in handcuffs. He was arrested. and. Um, you know, no one would listen to him at the time. They just thought yeah. he was out of his mind. And then after Hoover died, they realized that he was telling the truth. Mm. So that's a, a, your father in a 94-second nutshell. Talk, talk about your mom. I mean, these individuals are informing the women. women yeah. Um, what did you learn from mom? So um, my mom passed away a few years ago, but I learned so much from her. I learned... I, I believe my mom being raised by my mom is where I developed mental toughness. So my mom had this rule growing up, no whining, no crying, no complaining. And so long story short, but I was born with a hole in my heart and I had this life-threatening heart condition and I did not get diagnosed properly until I was 17 um, because no whining, no crying, no complaining. So when I was short of breath or felt like there was, you know, an elephant sitting on my chest, I didn't want to complain about it. And, um, so first of all, you know, do not ever don't take this advice for your own lives. When you feel like you have some kind of problem with your health, please go see a doctor. Um, but I feel like it taught me to be resilient. It taught me to never complain. It taught me to be able to, um, you know, see the sunshine, you know, that one ray of light that's coming through the clouds when everyone else just sees clouds. And so while it was difficult, I mean, it was kind of dangerous because I didn't get properly diagnosed until I was 17 when I lost consciousness and the friends that I was with had the good sense to rush me to the emergency room where I was diagnosed with this life-threatening heart condition, yeah. had surgery shortly after that. Um, it did teach me, you know, to endure pain and suffering without complaining and to try to have a positive outlook, even when things look kind of gloomy. So I do feel like I learned to be a strong person from her just because, you know, no whining, no climbing, no complaining. I go on these these long two month expeditions where there can be some whining and complaining because you're in a remote extreme environment and the weather is crap and you're you know, people are homesick and you're eating crappy food and you're, you know, you're going to the bathroom behind some rocks. You don't have running water. You're not sleeping in a bed. You're sleeping on the ground. It's cold. It's uncomfortable. And people can complain, but I never complain. I just, it's just who I am. I will never, ever complain about my situation. So I feel like that, um, that is something I learned from my mom that I really appreciate. There's a lot there to unpack, and, and and I won't hang out here for very long, but is there anything looking back on it that you wish, you know, your mother who was who she was, and she developed you into the woman you became, and that toughness, and that ability to not complain and control what you can, but do you wish she would have done a little bit more of something for you? Is there is there something that, looking back on it, you wish she'd been a little bit more tender on, or gentle? Yeah, she aware wasn't of. that, like, warm, loving right. mom that, you know, when I said, like, mom, I feel like, I feel like there's an elephant sitting on my chest. She's like, oh, you're fine. I'm sure you're just nervous for your piano recital. And I would say, mom, I just, I don't think that's it. She's like, how do you know? I'm like, because I don't take piano <laughs> lessons. I played the guitar growing up. You know, they talk about these helicopter parents that hover over their kids. I feel like I had space shuttle parents where I know they loved me, but they just weren't really tuned in to what was going on in my life. It's like, oh, your heart, it's probably fine, but go down the street, talk to our neighbor, Dr. Clark. You know, maybe he can figure out what's going on. And I'm like, mom, Dr. Clark is a veterinarian. So unless you want me to get spayed or microchipped, I really do not think he's going to be able to help me. But she was just always like, ah, you're fine. You're fine. And um, luckily, like I said, I got rushed to the hospital in time and could have surgery. But I do wish she'd been like a little bit more of a nurturer. Yeah. She was not a nurturer. Like she always says, you know, I, I just, I didn't get the nurture gene. She would say that all the time. I didn't get the nurture gene. And, um, and she didn't. So there were times where I definitely wished that I, you know, I felt like I needed that nurturing and I just didn't have a parent that was capable mm. of 
giving it to me. Well, sometimes we learn what to do from our parents and sometimes we learn what not to do exactly. from our parents and guardians. And from your parents, you, you grow up, you at 17 are aware finally that the elephant was indeed a heart condition. You have a surgery and then another surgery and yeah. then a third surgery yeah. to repair this. You go on to college, we'll fast forward the tape a little bit, graduate in three years, work in the normal work of life, you know, finance and telecom and medical sales. You did your homework. Dude, I'm, I'm ready to roll today. Yeah. And then eventually you go back, you know, Duke wouldn't even write me back to say you're not in O'Leary. Somehow you get the letter back that you're in for the MBA, but two months, two months before you go on and you go on to Duke to get the MBA, you make a trip to a dormant volcano. And I, I got to let the listeners know, I've been on a couple dormant volcanoes, one in Washington, one in Hawaii. You go a little bit farther than I did, though. You go all the way to Africa. So let's talk about the dormant volcano that you visited. All right. So after my second heart surgery, this light bulb went on in my head. And so when I, when I was younger, I was always intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers. And I would read books and I would watch documentary films. Um, I think because it felt like an escape from the oppressive summer heat in Phoenix. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I, I liked these stories of cold places. And so about 18 months after my second heart surgery, this light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, if I want to know what it's like to be this guy, you know, this Italian explorer, Reinhold Messner, and cross 600 miles of Antarctic ice on skis and go to the South Pole, then I should go ski across Antarctica instead of just <laughs> reading about it. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers and these mountaineers going to the remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the mountains instead of watching documentaries about them. And if this these other guys can go do this stuff, you know, why can't I do it too? So I climbed my first mountain when I was 32 years old. So I'm 55 now. So I started when I was 32 and it was Kilimanjaro. And I, I had a lot of frequent flyer miles because I had lived and worked in Southeast Asia prior to starting graduate school. So I used all my miles and I flew to Kilimanjaro. I was supposed to go with two girlfriends. We had these plans to go. And then about two weeks before the trip, they decided that they wanted to go to Club Med in Cancun instead. And so I, I didn't want to go to Cancun because I grew up in Arizona. It wasn't that far from Mexico. It didn't, I grew up in warm weather and going to Cancun didn't feel like a a special experience to me, but I wanted to do something to celebrate my new state of good health, you know, after my heart surgery. And so I, I used all my frequent flyer miles and I flew to Tanzania by myself. And I just went by myself and I found a local guide at the base of the mountain. And I think it was $300 and he took me up Kilimanjaro. And that was my first experience on a mountain. And I didn't own any gear. I didn't own any of this stuff behind me yet. I borrowed everything I needed from friends or friends of friends, except for hiking boots. I bought hiking boots, but everything else was borrowed for the trip. And so I just really learned, like, don't wait until you have, you know, other people, you know, don't put off something you want to do because you don't have anyone to go with you. You know, I, I think solo adventures can be, some of the best adventures you can ever experience. And if you use it too, so I don't have the right stuff. I don't have the right gear. You can borrow it. You can find people that will lend it to you because that's what I did. So I don't have this or I don't have that. That's not a good excuse. You can find it. You, you tell that story as if, Hey guys, as long as you have frequent flyer miles and a, a couple extra days, you can do this. So I did yeah. a little bit of research on Mount Kilimanjaro Turns out that this doggone mountain is 19,341 feet tall. Yeah. It's extraordinarily hard to get to. It's extraordinarily hot at the bottom, very cold and windy at the top, and requires you to be in remarkable shape. You fly out there as a 32-year-old post-heart surgery patient yeah. by yourself with utterly no training. And a couple more things. You're five foot four. You're not quite weighing at that point, even 110 pounds. And you've never done anything like this at all. No. What made you think that you could do it? All right. So I'm so glad you brought up Kilimanjaro because this is where I learned one of the most important lessons that has helped me on every mountain, every type of expedition, and in every aspect of my life where I felt really challenged. All right. So journey with me to Kilimanjaro. It is summit day. 
And it's the first time I've really been at altitude. As you mentioned, Kilimanjaro is over 19,000 feet. You don't have to have any technical equipment or technical training. It literally is just a long, like an incredibly strenuous hike. So it's summit day. And now I'm really feeling the altitude, banging headache. Feel like I'm going to vomit from the altitude, right? And I don't, I've never been at altitude at this point. So I don't realize that's just how you feel at altitude. That's normal. It, but I just thought something's wrong. Something's wrong. I feel like I'm going to vomit. I have this banging headache. I'm going to have to go down. I'm going to turn around and go down because I'm not feeling great. But before I go down, I'm just going to take like one or two more steps. Cause I just want to see what the view looks like from over here. And I would take a couple steps all right, this is really cool, but I definitely have to go down because I feel terrible. I feel terrible. I feel weak and lightheaded. I'm going to go down, but before I go down, I'm just going to take two more steps. All right. So two more steps. All right, I know I'm definitely going to turn around because I know I can't do this the way I feel right now. I'm so uncomfortable. I know I can't do this, but again, I'm just going to take like one or two more steps and then I'm definitely turning back and I would take a couple more steps. Well, Eventually, I find myself on the summit of Kilimanjaro, and I realize that that's how you get to the top of any mountain, a literal mountain or a figurative mountain that you might be facing in your life is it's just about putting one foot in front of the other. And one of the biggest lessons that I learned, and I really I learned this probably on my second Everest expedition, is that you do not have to be the best, fastest, strongest climber out there every day on the mountain. You just have to be absolutely relentless mm. about putting one foot in front of the other. And everybody can put one foot in front of the other. Even when you feel completely exhausted, drained of every ounce of energy in your body, you can always take one more step. That's how you get to where you need to be. You just take one more step like a gazillion times, but don't worry about being the fastest and the strongest just worry about putting one foot in front of the other. And I learned that on Kilimanjaro. So anytime I struggled on any subsequent mountain, I just thought to myself, okay, hang on, because I felt like this before and I didn't think I could keep going, but I did. And because I did it before, I can do it again now. So that's why that mountain to me was such an amazing experience and is probably my favorite mountain because that's where I learned that I could always put one foot in front of the other. You can keep going. Even when you feel like you want to quit, you can keep going. If you just think about taking one more step. There you got me all emotional right now, because what, what <laughs> you don't know is we, we film this, we shoot this live from our live inspired podcast right here in St. Louis, Missouri. And behind the camera and the broadcast setup are all of the guests we've had on our show. Just awesome people. Your picture is going up there next. The very first podcast we ever did, though, way back 375 episodes ago or so, was with someone who everyone should become familiar with. Her name is Susan, and her last name is O'Leary. She is the first mountain climber I got to know. Her name is Mom for me, so I wanted her to be my very first guest. And when I got burned as a nine-year-old boy, and when we spent five and a half months in hospital recovering, trying to figure out, like, how do we get through this time? It was like always the question I would ask my mom, it's like, oh, it's so painful, it's so hard, I want to go home. And her response was always, baby, you're just climbing a mountain. You're yeah. just climbing a mountain. And right now you're at the bottom, you're at the valley. But look right over there, that's the peak, that's homecoming. We're yeah. going to get you there. And do you know how we get you there? And I said, no, mom, one step at a time. I just need you to take one step today, just one step, baby, yeah. toward that peak. And so... What you're talking about today is music to my ears. It served yeah. me well in hospital. It served, I think, all of us well as we've ch faced challenges in life and then collectively overcome those challenges. It certainly yeah. served you well, Allison. And listen, we're getting all kinds of remarkable feedback and shares and likes and comments from those who are tuning in live with us right now on the Live Inspired channels. I want to remind everybody that they are listening to Allison Levine. You are tuning in to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. And today, it is brought to you by our friends at Keeley Companies. And if you have a question today for a mountain climber, overcomer, best-selling author, dog lover, encourager, and my friend, Allison Levine, type it in right now and we'll make sure we ask it today of Allison. But there's a question that came in a moment ago from one of our friends regarding the summits in your life, the success that you have, and some of the challenges from your past. And so I'm going to put it up on the screen right now from one of our guests. Uh, it's from Mr. Insurance. 
So Craig Henley, Mr. Insurance, here it comes, brother. Allison, do you feel like the lack of nurturing from your parents growing up has inspired you to overcome the challenges of climbing these seven summits and going up to the North and South Pole? What's the source for that internal fuel? I do. I actually do kind of feel like that lack of nurturing did inspire me because it taught me, right? Like it taught me, first of all, to be really self-reliant, to push through pain, to not complain, to try to find a silver lining in anything. So I feel like that kind of helped me like that's the it was reading the stories of the early arctic and arctic explorers that kind of inspired me to go for it but it was that lack of nurturing i think that helped me achieve it because i thought i don't need i don't need anything from anyone in order to go after my goals because i learned i can't rely on anyone else for encouragement or for coddling or for, you know, for help. Like I'm going to, when I do things, I just do them on, I'm going to have to do them on my own. Cause like my mom said, she would be like, you know, I just didn't get, she, she would say to me, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't have children. I just didn't get the nurture gene. I'm like, nor a filter because (laughs) (laughs) you do not need to be telling me that. Um, But I do feel like it taught me to be very self-reliant. So while it wasn't the motivation for me to achieve it, I feel Mm -hmm. like for me to try it, I feel like it it did help me achieve it because I was like, no matter how far things, you know, how bad things feel, I know I can rely on myself to get myself through this. So Mm -hmm. I do feel like it did, you know, have a hand in me achieving, you know, climbing the seven summits and skiing to the North mm. and South Pole. So I'm going to ask you about another summit here in a moment, but to recognize the question you just were asked and then answered, I'll remind our listeners right now that sometimes parents and teachers and coaches and bosses and first spouses and children and life will teach you exactly what to do. And other times those same individuals, those same ex- experiences will teach you exactly what not to do. And what you're hearing from Allison is the decision she made to not be a victim to her circumstances growing up, to utilize the best of what she received, but then to utilize some of the worst to fuel her forward in life. And I think that same opportunity is alive and well as we take the next best step forward in our journey. Yeah, and when I got older, I realized like my mom really loved me, but she just didn't have the ability to like verbalize it or show it in the way I wanted her to. Yes. So her way of showing it was food. Like every time I came home to visit, like every, there were no less than eight flavors of ice cream in the freezer. Cause she knows I love ice cream. And like all my favorite foods were prepared and out on the counter. So while she wasn't able to really verbalize it, she could show it to me in different ways. And you realize too, like my mom suffered from, um, she suffered from depression. And so she, you know, she had her own struggles and, um, you know, again, like when I was younger, I didn't understand what was going on. But when I got older, I came to understand it and accept it and appreciate her for she definitely had a lot of strengths. You know, nurturing wasn't one of them, but I love that she realized that. <laughs> I love your grace and I, I appreciate you showing it to others, to me and, and also to your mom. You climbed successfully Kilimanjaro, 19,000 plus feet. And from there, you saw a mountain off in the distance, just a little bit away in the Himalayas that was about 10,000 feet higher. Many of us are familiar with it. And if not, they're about to become far more familiar with it. There's a beautiful picture right there of Mount Everest, the the impossible mountain to climb. Let's talk about the journey even to make your way toward the Himalayas. You had to assemble a team and funding to even make this a reality. Uh, Talk about the vision you cast and the team members you assembled and why you chose them. So um, this was the American Women's Everest Expedition. And it was a climb that really taught me so much about leadership, about life, overcoming obstacles, dealing with a changing environment. I probably learned more about those things on the Everest Expedition, my first one, than I had on any other trip that I'd been on. So it was a trip that took place in 2002. And in 2001, I got a phone call from some other female climbers asking me if I wanted to serve as the team captain for this trip for the American Women's Everest Expedition. And initially I said, no, just because 
I felt like, like, even though I climbed the highest peak on six continents by then, but I just still had all this doubt. Oh, I'm not going to be good enough. I'm not going to be fast enough. I'm not going to be strong enough. And then I realized, okay, well, hang on, because there's only going to be one first American women's Everest expedition. And if I don't step up to the plate to be the team captain, you know, somebody else is going to do it. Somebody else is going to be living my dream adventure. So I ended up calling this woman back and agreeing to serve as the team captain. And like, even though at the time I still wasn't sure if I was going to be, you know, good enough, fast enough, strong enough. Like, I think there are just times in your life where you, where you just have to step up, even if you feel like you aren't ready. Right. So um, I ended up agreeing to serve as the team captain. We were sponsored by the Ford Motor Company and they were getting ready to launch their new full-size SUV, which was, of course, the Ford Expedition, right? So that's why they sponsored us, because it's our expedition and conjunction with their expedition. So they funded the entire trip. But putting together the team was a very interesting process. And the person who I think gives the best recruiting advice is Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski. So for those of you who are not familiar with Coach K... Um, he, he wrote the forward for my book and he's actually, he's the head men's basketball coach at Duke university for this one last season before he retires. And he's the winningest coach in the history of division one college basketball. And for those of you who don't care about college basketball and for Duke haters, because I know you are out there. Yeah. Now you're like, click turning off, not watching anymore. Um, no Duke haters bear with me for a second because as you probably know, Coach K was also the head men's basketball coach of the U.S. national team, right? Our, our U.S. men's Olympic team. And they brought home several gold medals under his leadership. And he gave me some advice about recruiting a team, which I think was really important. And he said, when he's recruiting a team, the first thing that he looks for is ego. And I thought, well, right, because you don't want that, right? You got to leave your ego at the door. I get it. And he said, no, you want ego. And I thought, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. This goes against everything I've read in every management and leadership book, right? You're supposed to leave your ego at the door. He went on to explain it. And then it, it, it actually made a lot of sense. He said that when he's recruiting a team, there's two kinds of ego that he looks for. The first is what he calls performance ego. He said, I want people who are good and you know that they're good. He said, I don't want LeBron James to come out onto the court and be a wuss. I need him to be LeBron James with all of the confidence that goes with them. And I thought, okay, that totally makes sense because I certainly do not want to be climbing Mount Everest with a bunch of teammates who are get, you know, who get to the mountain and are thinking, gosh, I don't really know about this. This looks yes. really high. You know, you want people who are thinking, I've got this, right? I've got this. So that's performance ego. The second kind of ego that Coach K looks for is what he calls team ego. He said, I want people on my team who are going to be proud to be a part of something that collectively feels more important than the individuals alone, right? Name on the front of the uniform, Team USA, is more important than the name on the back of the uniform. And that made sense to me too. And so that's really what I looked for when I was recruiting a team to go to Everest is I did phone interviews with people and there were people who, you know, first of all, I qualified them all and made sure they had the right level of experience to be successful on the mountain. But then the people who would, during the phone interviews, when they would say, okay, how much are we getting paid? And are we flying first class? And I'd be like, nothing and no. Um, then I knew those people were more concerned about what was in it for them. But then I had other people during phone interviews that would say, oh my gosh, even if I'm not chosen as an official official member of the climbing team, can I pay my own way to base camp and support you from there somehow? Can I help you raise money for the climb? I was also raising money for a cancer research grant for this organization called the V Foundation. Can I help you raise money for the V Foundation? What can I do? I want to be a part of this in some capacity. And I knew those were the people that had that sense of team ego. And so those were the people that I wanted. And I can honestly say if I had to pull together another team of women, it would be the, the exact same ones. You assembled an awesome team. You, you did everything right on the front side. I was blown away in reading your book. It's not like you parachute in and start climbing. You, you spend a couple months, a couple months on Everest. This is not a one and done. It's not quickly on and off. You spend a couple months. You have your one opportunity as you slowly make your way up and down, up and down and up and down this mountain as you slowly make your way toward the, toward the peak, toward the summit. Yeah. And then you get into the kill zone area. 
So from that point, and I'm sorry to fast forward, but I want to make sure we, uh, we have a couple more really cool things to chat about. You have one real opportunity to get to the very tippity top of the globe. Take us forward from there, Allison. All right. So you've spent almost two months on the mountain. And as you mentioned, when you climb Everest, you don't just climb from base camp to camp, one to camp two. You don't just climb up the mountain. You climb partway up and then you have to come back down. You have to climb even higher and then you come back down. You keep coming down to base camp again in between these higher, in between going to these higher camps because as you get higher on the mountain, your body is starting to deteriorate and your muscles are getting weaker. So you have to keep coming back down to a lower camp just so you can try to regain some strength, but you want to spend time at the higher camps because as you're at higher elevation, that's when your body starts to produce more red blood cells. These red blood cells carry oxygen throughout your body. So you want to produce more red blood cells, but as you're up high producing red blood cells, your muscles are getting weaker. So there's a lot of up and down, up and down to maintain your health and regain strength. So when it finally comes to summit day, You've been on this mountain for almost two months and you're ready to go for it, right? You're physically ready. You're mentally ready. You Then you start at base camp and you climb up to camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four. Camp four is at 26,000 feet. It's an area called the South Call. When you're at 26,000 feet, now you're in the death zone. They call it the death zone because at 26,000 feet, that is the elevation at which human life can no longer, you know, human beings can no longer survive, right? At that elevation, your body is literally slowly starting to die. Um, And you have to take about five to 10 breaths for one step just to catch your breath. So you're moving really slowly in the death zone. So we're psyched though. We get up to camp four in the South call. We are in the death zone. We're leaving for the summit about 1030 at night. We're moving slowly, but we're moving at a decent pace. You know, everyone's moving slowly up at that elevation and we get to within a couple hundred feet of the top, less than 300 feet, about 270 feet from the top. And a storm comes in. Storm clouds start to move in and the jet stream moves right over the summit. And we had to turn around less than 300 feet, just about 270 feet from the summit of Mount Everest. And trust me when I tell you that turning around and walking away from the deal when you're that close is actually harder than continuing on because it looks so close, right? You look like, oh, it's right there. I can do it. But because you're moving so slowly up at that elevation, reaching the summit would have taken us several hours. And we did not feel like we had that much time left of a decent weather window. And so we turned around just about 270 feet from the top. And it was really gut-wrenching because first of all, we were the first American women's yeah. ever expedition. We had all this media coverage, 450 media outlets were following our climb. This is way before social media. So 450 media outlets is a lot. We wanted to unfurl the big Ford Motor Company banner at the summit, right? They were so kind to and generous to sponsor the entire trip. And then we missed the top mm-hmm. by that much. And I just felt like, you know, I was disappointed for myself. I was disappointed for my team. I was disappointed for Ford. I was disappointed for all the people that were following the trip, even though it was before social media, the discovery channel was, um, they were covering the trip and they had a website, you know, now we would call it a blog, a daily blog, but they had a website. We didn't have that term then, um, that was covering the trip with photos and reports and everything. And I just really felt like, we disappointed a lot of people and I internalized that and just let that failure really like overcome my thoughts of positivity. And even though I put on like this brave face on the outside and inside, I was absolutely gutted because I just, you know, I write in my book that everyone should have a, everyone should have a personal mantra. And my mantra is count on me. I want people to know when I say I'm going to do something that I'm going to come through and I'm going to do it. And I want people to know that they can rely on me. And when I commit to something, I follow through and I place a high value on that and other people too. And so when we didn't come through, you know, even though it wasn't anything we could control, right. The weather, I still felt like I disappointed a lot of people and it, it took me eight years 
to get up the guts to go back and try it again because I was so afraid of failure. And this is something I really want people to think about. I'm, I'm embarrassed that it took me eight years to get up the guts to try it again. When you fail, you come right back from it. And you have to realize that failure is nothing more than one thing that happens to you at one point in time. It does not define you. It's how you come back from it that defines you. And it wish I wish it hadn't taken me eight years to get up the guts to try it again. But it did because I was afraid of that failure. And I thought, oh, if I don't make it again... Am I ever going to get another sponsor for an expedition? Is anyone ever going to want to be a part of my team if I fail again? And so I just kept thinking, instead of thinking what happens, what amazing things could happen if I succeed, I was just so focused on the bad things that could happen if I failed. And that's really one of my biggest regrets. And I feel one of my biggest mistakes. Allison, it is such a great story. And I'm so grateful in some regards that you did not succeed the first time. I think had you, your story and our story and the story of anyone who's ever failed and not and has not then taken the next right step would look up to you as if someone they would never ever become as a mother, as an aunt, as a father, as a dog lover, as a worker, as an employee, as a nurse, as a pick the trade, you would be completely unrelatable because you failed, because you were within sight of the goal and then turned your back on it. Mm while the world watched and while Jay Leno mocked you. And then you came yeah. home with your tail between your legs and explore expedition, pulling their flag back and saying, better luck next time, ladies. And yeah. you failed not only for women, but the nation and the Ford yeah. Motor Company. And everybody's watching this, but you don't allow it to take the best of your life going forward. You, you, you yeah. sit there and you feel the pain and then you get your big, Girl, boots back on eight years later, you tether them up, you get the jacket on, you get on the flight and you go again. And so we could spend an awful lot of time talking about what emotionally took place there. But I want to just get you back on the flight, back into the Himalayas, back at 20,000 feet, then 22, then 24, then 26,000 and take the rest of the way up. I've got a picture of you, I believe, taken on top of the world. Yeah. So this is eight years after you left behind that goal. And this time you are sitting right on top of it. Would you yeah. just share with us what you felt that day? Yeah. So um, first of all, the shirt you see, Team Meg. I climbed in honor of my girlfriend, Meg, who passed away in 2009. She passed away very unexpectedly at age 37. And she was a huge inspiration to me because I felt like she was one of the most brave people I ever met. And she wasn't afraid to try anything. And so right after she passed away a couple months later, I engraved her name in my ice axe and decided to go back to Mount Everest and try it again. Cause I thought Meg, she would want me to try this again. Cause she wasn't afraid of anything it seemed. And so I went back and I went back to the mountain eight years later, got up, you know, to another two months on the mountain, get up to the high camp and in comes the storm again. And I thought I Cannot believe I am back here eight years later in the same exact situation, right? Ready to go for the top and in comes a storm. But I mean, of course, we're all learning since COVID hit. We cannot control the environment, right? We know that we can only control the way we react to it. And so I decided, okay, this doesn't look good, but I'm at least going to get out of this tent and try. I'm going to try. And so I got out of my tent and managed to climb for about two hours. Things continued to deteriorate. The was dumping snow. The route was in terrible condition, but I just thought, okay, I can't, I have really crappy visibility right now. I can't see what's coming down this summit ridge and you're on the summit ridge and it is an 8,000 foot drop on one side of the ridge and a 10,000 foot drop on the other side of the ridge. So when you don't have visibility, it is really freaking scary, but and I couldn't see what was in front of me. I couldn't see in front of me at all. But that's really when I realized like, you don't have to have perfect clarity about what's coming down the trail in order to just put one foot in front of the other. It's okay to not know what's coming down the trail. It's okay to not know what's around the next corner. It doesn't mean you can't keep going. Right. And it was such a great lesson to learn that you, you don't have to, you don't have to know what's coming at you. You don't have to have perfect visibility, but you can still just put one foot in front of the other. As I mentioned, that is how you get to the top of Mount Everest or any mountain in your life. 
literal or figurative, you just put one foot in front of the other. So that is what I did. That is how I made it to the summit of Mount Everest in 2010. That summit for me was the completion of what's known as the Adventure Grand Slam, which is climbing the seven summits, the highest peak on each continent, and then skiing to both the North and the South Pole. I think now today there's about 20 people or so that have completed the Adventure Grand Slam. But at the time, there were only a couple of us. So um, so <laughs> it was it was crazy. Yeah, Allison, right? just, um, imagine what you yeah. could have done in life if you were an athlete. I mean, you, you really <laughs> could have done something. It's just such a shame that you... You were cursed with you know, what you were cursed with. So I, no, I, I just feel like I just feel like I am like a regular person because I feel like when you think about elite athletes, like you feel like I'm like these people have like training schedules and trainers and coaches and nutritionists and and doctors that are, you know, advising them. And they have all they have like a team of people and they have a this special diet that they stick to and they take all kinds of supplements. And like, I'm just not that person. Like I you know, take calcium tablets every morning because I'm old and you have to do it for my bones. Um, but I take calcium, like I've never had any special coaching or trainers or anything. Um, but I just feel like if you want, anyone can do, anyone can climb a big mountain. You just have to have the desire. You have to have the willpower and you have to be willing to endure discomfort. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest thing. I see so many people quit because they're homesick. They're cold. They are tired of shit food. You know, ah, oh, this freeze-dried food. I'm so tired of it. And I'm tired of sleeping on the in a sleeping bag. And I miss running water and I miss regular food. I miss my family. You know, all these things people miss. And people will throw in the towel for psychological reasons. And you just keep you, if you can keep your head in the game, like you can do it. But that willpower, this willpower has to come from your heart. You can't buy it. No trainer can give it to you you know, like, it's just something that has to come from within you. Mm. There's so much great stuff there. And I think the mistake might be for some of our listeners and viewers to think this is all about mountain climbing, or skiing to the poles. And if you're thinking that right now, you, you're missing what this really is. This is about summiting life. This is about overcoming adversity. This is about storms and weather and global pandemic showing up in your life. And none of us have a clue what tomorrow might have in store, but you have in the audacity to take the next right step today. Yeah. And That's I love, so that quote that you just showed, um, and I know my name's, attributed, but it's because I do say that all the time, but this is actually a quote from Junko Taibe, who's the first woman to ever climb Mount Everest. The first woman to ever get to the top. She's from Japan. She's amazing. So Junko Taibe, 12 days before she was due to summit, she got completely buried in an avalanche, completely buried. She was buried underneath the snow for more than six minutes. It took an entire team of Sherpas to dig her out. And once they dug her out, she could barely stand up because she was in so much pain after being buried by that avalanche. But she persevered. And even though she was in pain, she went on to summit Mount Everest and became the first American, or sorry, the first, not American, first woman, the very first woman to do so. And I just, I love that quote from her because it, it's true. It's so true. Technique and ability are only going to get you so far. Like you, you have to have that willpower. And look, you all have it. Every single one of you can find that willpower. This isn't something special that like someone gave it to you. Somebody, you had to train to get it. You know, you had to go to a certain school to learn about it. No, you, we all have willpower. It's just a, a matter of letting it rise, right? Letting it rise within you. You can all take one more step when you feel like quitting. We all have those times where we feel like we can't keep going, but you can always take one more step. And once you take that step, take one more, take one more, take one more. Allison, we have only about 10 minutes left in this no! climb together. And it, it, it's flying by. I've enjoyed being with you. The, the comments online are remarkable. For those who are tuning in right now, we're grateful that you're with us live. You may feel free to ask a question of the great climber herself, Allison Levine. You may also feel free to share this in a marketplace that uh, is filled with so much bad news and negativity. This is a story of triumph not only for Allison Levine, but for all of us, the possibility of the next right step being the one that changes lives, including our own. So Allison, as we as we get ready to move toward the Live Inspired Seven questions, I do have two pictures, one more about mission, the other one a little bit more playful. I'd like you to tell me what the picture is okay. and why it matters. 
Okay. So what the picture is and um, why that matters. <laughs> that is, um, okay. So that is uh, me and my friend, Nicole Drian, who lives in Tahoe, taking the very first local women um, you local women in Uganda to the top of Uganda's highest peak. So that was uh, an expedition in 2005. And when we went there, we learned that local women in Uganda were not allowed to climb Uganda's highest peak. It was considered taboo in their culture for local women to climb. And it's crazy that they let other women come right. and climb, but they don't let local women climb. So um, so I ended up calling a meeting with the head of the guiding service, the head of the local village, um, and the head of the park service. And I talked them into letting us take the very first local Ugandan women to the top of Uganda's highest mountain. And I told them, look, these women, they can climb, they're strong. And if they can make it, you should give them jobs and let them work as porters and trekking guides in these mountains. I hear my dog moving around behind me. Um, and so we took the first group of local women up there and they ended up getting jobs and they are able to earn a sustainable living wage for the first time in their lives. Because prior to us taking women up into the mountains, the only, and, and training them to work as porters and trekking guides, the only way that local women in Western Uganda had to earn money was through prostitution. And they used to tell me, we pray for war. We pray for war because when there's war, there's soldiers. And when there's soldiers, we can make money, right? As prostitutes. It was the only way they could feed their families. And so we changed that for them. And uh, it's, I, I love the trip because it proved that climbing a mountain can have impact, right? Because sometimes I would ask myself, I get back from a hard trip where things didn't go well. And I think, oh my God, what, what the hell? <laughs> what the hell was all that for? Yeah. And I learned climbing a mountain can actually change lives. And it did for these women in Uganda. Woof. I wish we could drop the mic, but we, we, we just got to keep moving forward. I have one more. It's a kind of a two-part picture yeah. getting ready to show in front of you. One is you getting ready for the next climb, the next battle. And the next is an awesome artistic rendition of what that became in time. So what are we looking at here and why does it matter? All right. So the picture of me with the goggles over my head, that is a photograph from my Antarctic expedition. It, I wish we had another hour because it was the hardest expedition I've ever been on. Yeah. And uh, it was a 600 mile ski traverse from the edge of West Antarctica to the South Pole following in the footsteps or ski tracks, should I say, of legendary badass explorer Reinhold Messner. Reinhold Messner, you guys can Google him. Not now because I'm still talking, but after after this, you can Google Reinhold Messner if you're not familiar with him. He's probably the most accomplished modern day explorer. He's the first guy to uh, climb Everest solo and without oxygen. Like I said, he is one tough bastard, yes. which is probably his nickname in elementary school. Um, but anyway, Messner pioneered this route across West Antarctica. And I'd read about him when I was younger and I wanted wanted to know what it was like to do that. So I went there and I did it. I was part of a team of four other international polar explorers. And I'm not, I, can't, I don't have time to tell the story, but let me just tell you, I was the slowest, weakest person on the team because I was so small at, you know, five foot four, 110 pounds. I had teammates that were six foot four, 230 pounds, and they could drag that sled. You see me dragging that sled there. They could drag the sleds a lot more quickly and a lot more efficiently because the law of physics basically dictates that people who are bigger, taller, stronger, can haul that sled a lot faster and more efficiently than somebody who's my size. And again, long story short, but my teammates had to, they, had, they in a very sneaky fashion, took weight out of my sled um, and they put it in their sleds and they made their sleds heavier and made my sled lighter so that I could keep up and ski faster. It was just an incredible act of leadership and teamwork from the people that I was with. Just a minute. My dog wants to go outside. Well, well, the dog is barking. Let me just weigh in. You hear the words 600 miles and you think, well, that's far. Okay, where's my peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And we move on. To put it in perspective, we have people tuning in from 50 states and 75 different countries right now for the Live Inspired. 600 miles is, is leaving St. Louis, saying goodbye to the Arch and skiing down to Florida. Yeah. 
<laughs> on the South Pole. I mean, th this is an epically long, dangerous, arduous journey that you and some really strong guys go on yeah. safely. And so that's what that picture represents. And then yeah. the one next to it, Allison. Okay, so that? then I spoke at this conference. It was the Craft Brewers Association. I think it was five or 6,000 people at this conference in Washington, D.C. I was the keynote speaker. And after I did my presentation, this the a couple of women came up to me and they're like, what is your favorite beer? And I said, my favorite beer, I was chocolate stout because anything chocolate, right? Anything chocolate's going to get my vote of approval. I said, my favorite beer is chocolate stout. And she said, we're going to name a beer after you. And she said, I, I am the owner, you know, founder of a brewery in Charlotte, North Carolina called Bold Missy Brewery. And all of our beers are named after bold women. So we are going to name a beer after you. And, um, and I actually, like they were, we were trying to brainstorm names. And then I actually came up with the name conquer the route because they were doing chocolate stout. And so, um, and so this is the beer. That's the beer label that you see in front of you. That's the beer label for conquer the route chocolate stout at bold Missy brewing Charlotte. And unfortunately, um, the brewery did not survive the pandemic, but we're hoping that it will, you know, come back in some way shape or form you know in the future well i'm, I'm first in line for conquer the route uh to, to host my friend who i look up to and as we do with all of our guests allison we have seven questions that tether them together oh. as one and okay. as we get ready to move into the live, live inspired seven uh, i want to thank you for your story thank you for making your mother and your father remarkably proud of the daughter they loved enough to raise as well as they possibly could. And you've inspired all of us on the show so far today with seven questions to go. We're going to, we're going to ski quickly to the finish line. The first is what is the most impactful or inspirational book that you've ever read? Oh my gosh. Um, well, one that really like floored me recently that I read is called span of control by a woman named Carrie Lorenz. You might know yeah. she's the, the Navy's first female F-14 pilot. And, you know, with so much, everything being so hectic these days, she teaches you how to really focus on just the things that matter and get all the other clutter out of your brain. So I would say like, I've read a lot of really good books, but for my recent ones, I say span of control. Someone asked me recently this question and I just finished a vacation with my kids and uh, I, I shared with them uh, Endurance by oh, Shackleton. Yes. Oh my gosh. That is one of my all-time favorite books, like that it's I've read so before. That, like adventure books. Oh my gosh! It, it, there's you guys read the story, Ernest Shackleton, Endurance. Incredible, incredible story of survival. Incredible. Oh, right on. Well, and you're you're Shackleton's peer as you journey forward in life. It's a very cool story, yours and his. So, what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, um, I think I was really talkative as a kid and, um, I've turned into such an introvert, but when I was younger as a kid, like I would just wanted to talk to everybody. And now I feel like I'm so introverted that I kind of stay in my shell quite a bit. And I feel like I need to bust out of that shell a little bit more when I'm in, you know, around people. I, I, Allison, I found the best presenters are introverts because they are doing the work not for themselves and to be heard, but for the audience to be moved. Yeah. And I, I picked that up on you every time I've seen you and read you and heard you, and I'm certainly picking that up today. So uh, remain an introvert, but keep sharing your voice. Qu question number three, if your home caught fire, your spouse, your dog are out safely, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing that matters to you, what's the one thing you come racing back outside with? I think my photo album. Well, I shouldn't even say that because everything now is on like um, Dropbox. Like I have everything digitally, but there's a lot of photos I have that are not digital yet. Like just old photos of like my parents and relatives and like just like generations of grand, you know, grandparents and great grandparents. And I don't have those things digitized yet. And I want, oh, I would want to keep those. If you could sit on a bench or on the South Pole or North Pole, or top of Everest and have a nice long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you want to be sitting there having this wonderful conversation with? I would want to have a conversation with this woman. Her name's Pasang Lamu Sherpa. She died in 1993. She was the very first female Sherpa to summit Mount Everest. And I'm so inspired by her. She tried three times unsuccessfully 
finally summited Everest on her fourth time, became the first female Sherpa to do so, but she died on the way down. I'm actually working on a documentary film about her right now, but her death is a mystery. And I want to know what happened, what happened on the way down. Um, she died. She passed away along with another Sherpa, um, the leader of the expedition and his body was never found. And so there are people that believe that he was so distraught about the fact that she died that he threw himself off the side of the mountain because he couldn't bear to come back without her mm. since she died on his watch. But I want to know what happened, what happened that day and what gave her, you know, the courage, like where she found that courage to keep going. I mean, I could barely go back after one failed attempt. She went back after three failed attempts. So um I'm sure would be my person. We look forward to seeing the movie. I know you're working on that. What, what's, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received um, was it's not so it was actually more of an explanation than yep. advice. And it really helped me to realize something super important. So it was after I'd interviewed for a job promotion and I didn't get it. And my manager, I think I was like 25 years old. And my manager said, you know, I felt like during the interview, you were kind of negative about like these certain things. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I wasn't, I don't feel that, you know, I don't feel that way at all. I don't, I did actually didn't say anything negative about those things. And what she said was, she said, you know, it doesn't matter what you think you said. It's how the person infers it. That's important. Mm. And that really, that was so important to me to realize going forward is, is that that advice is whatever you say, whatever you meant, doesn't matter. It's how it's the person interprets it, how they infer it. And that's what you have to focus on. And so that, like, I remember that now when I am communicating difficult news or just talking about something that's difficult, I really am aware of, like, it doesn't matter what I say, it's how it's interpreted. That's mm -hmm. the only thing that matters. My intention doesn't matter whatever I meant it's how that person takes it. That is what I have to, you know, what I have to pay attention to. You have to. control over. So question number six along the journey forward with just one remaining behind this one is if you could go back in time 32 years or so and whisper some encouragement or, or advice into your own little years at age 20, what wisdom would you impart on yourself? Um, I think I would teach, I would tell myself to be more compassionate to other people because I think ever like, especially like growing up with my mom, like I was so always like trying to figure out like, what, you know, why doesn't, why do, am I not bonding with her? Why are we not connected emotionally? Like, why is she, does it feel like she has this wall around her? And I was very resentful of that for a long time. And then I didn't realize like she suffered, she was fighting her own demons. She was fighting depression. She was dealing with her own things. And so I wasn't compassionate about what she was going through. I was only thinking about how it affected me. And that really like caused me a lot of internal turmoil as a young adult. And I think just understanding her more and being more aware of mental illness and mental health, which I didn't know anything about that. Um, I think that I would explain that to my 20 year old self. And I think that it would make me not only cut her some more slack, but just be easier on myself and stop trying to be such a people pleaser. Cause I was like, maybe if I do this, it'll be different. Or maybe if I act like this, it'll be different. Or maybe if I try this, it can change things. And I remember sitting down with her going like, I just really feel like we need to be closer. And she goes, I just, I don't understand why you are so needy. So um, like, she just didn't like she, the, it stuff just like didn't register with her, but I would tell my 20 year old self that. So I would stop trying so hard yeah. and just understand that people have, sometimes they have things going on with their own brains that prevent them from being the person we want them to be. Man, that is good advice for you to get at age 20. It's great advice for me to receive in my mid 40s. And I promise you for the listeners that we still have on board and viewers, it's critical advice we all must hear and implement today. Yeah. Meet people where they are. Love them as yes. they are. Meet them yes. at the well of their lives, not yours. That's not yes. empathy. That's sympathy. That's looking downhill. So um, I'm amazed yeah. that you were able to look back at that experience with your mother and uh, embrace it. Not not love it, not celebrate it, right, but to embrace her for who yeah. she was and accept who you it. Are, Come who to you terms with are. it. Yeah. So the final question for mountain climber, overcomer, best-selling author, and my friend Allison Levine is this. Allison, it has been said that all great people 
All great climbers can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She loved dogs. <laughs> I love dogs so much. I wish Trooper was still in here. He's in the other room, like whining at me. I put I him to sleep a moment ago, I think, with, with my long-winded questions. Poor Trooper. Apologize later on for me. The biggest dog keeps saying, like, on my tombstone, I just wanted to say, like, she loved dogs. Uh, Trooper's my first dog, by the way. So um, I never, that's why I'm so obsessed with him, because I never had dogs growing up. And my husband thinks, that, he's 13. My husband thinks I'm going to need to be hospitalized when the day comes that we lose him. But I started crying on his third birthday, and I was just sobbing in my husband's like what's wrong and I'm like I just I don't want him to die and he's like he's three he's got a couple of good years left but um but I just love dogs I do I love dogs so much I think about them all the time I want to start a dog rescue I just feel like we can learn so much from them we learn so much from them so so I, I don't see her right but now so but she, she loved dogs but also hopefully maybe like she encouraged others to try that's what I want people to think about when they think about me is that I encourage others to try. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to get to the top of the mountain, but just try, just try. Well, my friends, you are listening to a conversation between John O'Leary and Allison Levine. She is a dog lover. She is an awesome inspiration and overcomer, reminding all of us, myself included, to try. You don't need to get to the very tippity top, but you do have to put your left foot in front of your right and then keep taking the next right step going forward into your lives. If you've enjoyed this conversation today as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you, a couple things to do. Number one, be aware that it is brought to you by our friends at Keeley Companies. So I want to thank those folks for allowing us to bring this into the marketplace that is so desperate for hope and inspiration. Secondly, why not share it? Why not share this? Whether you're listening to the podcast or the Facebook stream, wherever you're tuning in from today, Share this with your friends, share it with your leaders. They will benefit from Allison's story. And the third, and maybe the final, why not tune back in next week? Allison is walking forward, but following in her footsteps will be a gentleman who has broadcast the Olympics among many, 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 many other programs. His name is Bob Costas. So we will be back live next week, 10 o'clock Central, Wednesday, September 7th, I believe is a date at 10 o'clock central to share the story, the life and the inspiration of Bob Costas. So my friends for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. That was Allison Levine. And today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I certainly hope you enjoyed the conversation with Polar Explorer mountain climber, overcomer, awesome example, Allison Levine. If you enjoyed the episode today as much as I and our organization enjoyed bringing it to you, why not take just a moment to share it with a friend, a family member, a colleague right now? It's an awesome opportunity to let folks know in your network that you tune into the Live Inspired podcast, and they should too. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, my gosh, why not? Why not? So why not subscribe right now? And, and uh, you know, if you rate the program, this is an awesome way for us to understand, first of all, the benefit that it is to you, but also for our impact to swell and to grow and to elevate beyond our reach currently. So uh, subscribe and share and comment and let others know that you are tuning in to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. And if you are so bold, and I hope you are, join us live next week, Wednesday, September 8th at 10 a.m. Central with legendary sportscaster and my friend, his name, go ahead, drum roll, Bob Costas. So next week, we have an opportunity of interviewing Bob Costas, and we will be streaming that conversation live. We'll be able to check it out on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter. You won't want to miss it. If you need to know more about, well, how do I do that? Go to our website at johnolearyinspires.com. There's links there to the podcast, to our various social media platforms that you can follow. And of course, if you still don't know how to, how to track this, and yes, mom, I'm talking to you right now and dad. Uh, you may email us at johnolearyinspires.com. Go to the website. There's a link there for email, and we'll walk you through how to listen and view and tune in and engage live. You won't want to miss it. Next week with Bob Costas, Wednesday, September 8th at 10 o'clock Central. So for this time, and until next time, I want to thank you all for being part of our Live Inspired family. 
We are grateful for you not only hearing and viewing these messages, but far more importantly, for living them. So keep taking the next right step forward and know without a, without a shadow of doubt that the foundation is firm, the headwind is real, but the best days remain in front of us.